Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to Young Adults. And you guys, uh, if you were here last week, we did a little, uh, little hot seat where Rob and I came up and tried to answer your questions to the best of our ability. And uh, we did a little survey at the end just to see if you guys wanted to do a little dating series. And overwhelmingly, um, on our Instagram, you guys voted to do the dating series opposed to Romans. So we're going to be uh, kind of clicking pause on Romans just for uh, four or five weeks or so. And we're going to be talking about dating and marriage and, the, and, and, and sex and how to have good relationships and really all of the above. And so just real quick, raise, a, raise your hand if you want to be married one day. Raise your hand if you're single. No, I'm just kidding. All right, free <laughs> All right, so uh, all of us, a large percentage of us, I mean, maybe a few of you guys are like, nah, girls suck, guys suck, whatever, that's fine. Uh, but a large percentage of us, we want to be married, all right? And so um, as we think about marriage, as you guys are the age where you're thinking about uh, getting married and, and finding potential people that you're interested in, uh, making your husband or your wife, um, doing a series on dating would be of utmost importance. And I'm just going to be upfront with you that um, tonight is going to be kind of like the least least practical night, because tonight what we're going to be doing, and we're going to kind of journey through, is the theology of marriage. And the reason I want to do theology of marriage is it builds the bedrock so we can build all the practical stuff that comes next. And so every other week after this, I'm going to give you some helpful tips and tools to be Mr. and Mrs. Right, all right? So you can make sure that relationship works. Because here's what I've learned in my years of being a pastor and doing weddings and things like that. There is no such thing as marital problems. You've heard me say this before. There are two jacked up people who decide to get married. That's, what, that's, the, that's the truth of it, right? And so my hope and my prayer is that we would not be jacked up people by the time that we, well, I'm already married, but you guys get married. Is there anyone married here? Am I the only person in the room married? Is there anyone engaged? Cool, two people. <laughs> uh, perfect. All right, so um, before we hop into where we're, uh, we're headed today... Here's why I want to talk about this. Um, the truth is, I think the way that most people date is they develop patterns for divorce one day. All right? I think that's kind of a pretty harsh statement. But yeah, I think the way that most people date, and I think week three and four, we're going to be talking about dating. And the last week, we're talking about singleness, because I do believe that, that singleness is a vital season of your life, um, and it's a time for growth in your life. And so if you are single... Um, God's actually got you in a great place, right? And a season of wanting that guy or that girl. Um, well, week five, we'll just be here for that, all right? So, um, so, yeah, I think most people, the way that they, they, they date is they, they really just psychologically develop a pattern that's really gonna lead them to divorce one day. And I wanna save you guys from that. Look, I've only been married like this, uh, this year, it's eight years, this November, um, which isn't like, you know, 40-something years, right? But I think I, I have great mentors in my life who have been married for 40 or 50 years, and I'm just following the blueprint that they've, and the scripture itself has illuminated, and I think I have an incredible marriage. Like, marriage is so much better than I ever thought it would be, to be honest with you, um, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second when I've witnessed my parents' marriage. Um, just by another show of hands, raise your hand if you would love to have the relationship that your mom and dad have with each other, biological. Okay, raise your hand if you're like, no, thank you. Yeah, you put your hands down. Um, I took a picture, and I'm going to send it to your parents. Now I'm playing. Uh, I'm just kidding. Right? And so here's the truth, right? The, the type of marriage that you're most like, mostly likely going to build and pattern your marriage after is the one that you witnessed your entire life. 
Now, for some of us, that's awesome. Like for my wife, her parents are the senior pastors of our church, Doyle and Connie, phenomenal human beings. Me, on the other hand, no thank you, right? Like I, I would like to have a better marriage, and thank God I've had people like Doyle and Connie in my life to build a new model and then develop mentors to walk me through the model. And so that's what this series is going to help us do. But before we hop into where we're going today, here's the opening question. I don't know if I have a slide for this. Do I have a slide for this? I don't know if I have a slide. Here's the opening question. Do you think you have a healthy model for marriage and sex? Why or why not? Do you think you have a healthy model for marriage and sex? Why or why not? I'm going to give you guys like 30 seconds to a minute. Turn, discuss, ready, set, go. So uh, I mentioned my parents' marriage a little bit earlier, and I said something that was kind of important that really built the framework for the next handful of weeks, and that is that the type of marriage that you will most likely advertently build is the one that you witnessed your entire life. So I want you to think about the relationship between your mom and your dad, or whatever, whatever, whatever family dynamic that you saw is most likely what's going to be imprinted upon you. By the way, so I'm going to give you some resources probably every single week, a few resources that I would love to offer to you. There's a book by Milan Nikkei Yurkovich entitled How We Love. When I ever do uh, premarital counseling, um, I give a handful of books. The first one I give is How We Love by Milan Nikkei Yurkovich, two Christian psychologists that have a practice together and they are married. And um, they uh, chronicle the, their 40 years of, of, a, of having a practice together and sharing as they have met with different couples about, pre, about marriage or just their individual lives. And they've come up with these things called these love imprints. And um, it's really fascinating. But one of the chapters talks about the way in which uh, uh, the way our parents loved each other, the marriage that we saw, really is, 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 is going to imprint the way in which you treat your wife or the way in which you treat your husband one day. And so over the next handful of weeks, um, and maybe even today, I want you just to, to be mindful, and I want you to take a look and just maybe ask some questions about the marriage that you saw your entire life. And so tonight, like I said, I just want to take a brief look at what Scripture says about marriage and sex and God's intention when he, had, when he created marriage and sex. It wasn't like, and this is the joke that I give to junior high and high school students, like that God from a heaven was looking down and going like, you know, Adam and Eve were, were getting it, and he's like, what are you guys doing, right? Like, no, he created the very male and female anatomy, right? He wasn't surprised when they were having intercourse. In fact, God commanded it, right? He gave Adam a high five and was like, get it, right? That's basically in the Bible. It says, be fruitful and multiply. And in the Greek, I think it says get it or something like that, right? But that's basically the context, right? So our next handful of weeks, we're going to be studying some different Greek words. <laughs> I feel like I should just pray and have you guys do discussion groups now. Uh, Pastor Matt said, get it. Uh, <laughs> um, we're going to be studying different words for, for love. And... Um, one of the Greek words we'll be studying today is the word eros. Eros is where this kind of romantic type of love comes from. It's those butterflies when you were in junior high and that guy walked by, whatever, right? What, what, that's eros. There's different types of love that we'll be kind of unpacking in weeks to come. Storge, phileo, um, agape um, are really the four we're going to be going. There's eight words in the Greek language for love, which is pretty wild. In the English, we have I love my wife and I love Oreos. <laughs> you get the difference, but there's the same word. Um, but you understand, that, well, hopefully, <laughs> there's a depth of difference between the two of those, right? Um, and so the Greek language, I think, is really um, phenomenal when we talk about this topic. So today we're talking about eros. It's that being in love um, type, of, type of love. Now, each one of the loves that we're going to journey through over the next handful of weeks does have a telos. That's an end goal, a, a purpose. And the next handful of weeks, we're going to be talking about that. Now, what do you think marriage's end goal would be? One of them would be? Sex, that's one of the reasons that God created sex. It would be in the confines of a marriage. So there's a big question we're going to be kind of journeying through today. What does God expect from me in regards to sex, sexuality, and marriage? Right? What does God expect? As if you're, now, if you're a believer, 
If you're not a believer, I'm glad you're here. I would want to bring to your attention why I think that natural marriage, and I'm going to define that, is the, is the best type of marriage that's built off the blueprint of God's, uh, God's design, um, opposed to whether that be homosexual marriage or uh, we're going to talk about different types of view of a consumer and a covenantal type of relationship today, and why I think that God's blueprint for marriage is the healthiest. Um, and so, yeah, so if you are a believer in this room, um, it's important that you don't look to anyone other than God and Scripture to build a blueprint of everything for our lives, right? It's not like, um, and I think one of the reasons that a lot of Christians still get divorced is they look elsewhere to build their blueprint. Um, I kind of talked a little bit about this in main campus last week about following the wrong shepherds. Um, I called them imposter shepherds, imposter patterns of life. And so um, I think we could probably agree in here that the cultural understanding of marriage and even sexuality for that is drastically different than what a biblical one would be. In fact, you know what? I'm going to give you guys a minute. I want you to turn and discuss, and I want you to do like a Venn diagram, let's say. You guys remember Venn diagrams? It sucked, but here we go. Um, uh, what do you think the difference between biblical marriages and, let's say, cultural marriage? Like just the understanding of it. I just want us to get us to start thinking about it, and then I'll fill in some of the blanks, all right? So on one side, we have biblical marriage as defined in Scripture, and then on the other side, we have cultural marriage, which just be a, a, a classical understanding of what marriage's purposes are and things like that, all right? And I know it's a little bit challenging, but I'm just going to give you maybe a minute, 30 seconds or so, turn and maybe just, what do you think maybe some of the differences are between God's idea of marriage and what, like, culture's idea, like e-news? What do you think e-news is a, a vision of marriage is in, in the Bibles, all right? I'll give you guys, let's say, 30 seconds to a minute. Ready, set, Go. Yeah, so I just want to start to get us to think about it because, um, look, we as Christians live differently and we get different outcomes. Uh, and that's, that's important, right? That, it, that because we live differently, we actually get better outcomes, different outcomes that are drastically different than the world's. And that's why in the book of John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, for the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, to give you a different pattern of life that doesn't lead you to life. But Jesus says that I have come and I give life and I give it abundantly. There are two types of life described in scripture. There's bios, which is where we get the word biology, and it just means you're surviving, and I know a lot of marriages that are just surviving. And then there's the Greek equivalent that's the word Zoe. And the word Zoe means abundant life. Like Zoe's here. It means abundant life, right? And that's the type of marriage that God wants for you, one of abundance. Not material possessions, but the filling of one's heart. That's the biblical definition of abundance. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the two-story house and the 2.5 kids, whatever that means, and a dog and whatever, right? And a Bugatti, whatever. That's not what it means, right? It just means that you have a full heart. And so I think we could probably agree that in our Venn diagram, on one side, you're going to realize that uh, the societal view is that marriage is just simply a social construct. That it was a man-made institution. And if it really is a man-made institution, I am willing, as I'm sitting with someone who's an atheist, to go, hey, like, yeah, I think you can believe in gay marriage if, and that the if is the most important word in the sentence, if marriage is a man-made institution, if it really is a man-made institution, it's not an institution that was created by God, then yeah. Think of it this way, right? Like one day someone decided what stoplights were going to mean. They're like, you know what green? Green means go. Yellow means speed up. <laughs> and then red means pump the brakes, right? If, it's, if, if, if marriage is a social construct, then you can decide what marriage, sex, and even sexuality is for and what they're for. And so I find it no coincidence that we live in a society that we are rapidly unanchoring ourselves from a biblical and Judeo-Christian worldview that we start wrestling with things like sexuality. What is gender? 
uh, marriage and, and sex itself, right? Because again, if it's a mammon institution, well, then yeah, define it. The other day, I was listening to a TED Talker a while ago, actually, and the premise was how and why we made a mistake when we, mankind, created the institution of marriage. Interesting enough, there was a woman, she was advocating that we keep marriage because it's got some good things. She said it's in some sociological reports that it's the best uh, construction and institution for the rearing of children, meaning the development of emotionally uh, and relationally sound human beings. But we should get rid of some things like monogamy. And uh, it was hilarious because the camera like panned off to the audience, like you guys, and all the husbands were like, huh, she got some good stuff to say. And all the women were like cocking back their arm about to smack their idiot husband in the head. It was like hilarious. Like the girls were like disgusted that this woman would advocate that men can sleep with more than one, one spouse. And that was hilarious, the juxtaposition between the two. I think culture obviously has a different perspective, right, on what the purpose of marriage would be. And I think we could probably agree, at least on one side of your Venn diagram, was probably the words personal happiness. And that makes sense, right? Because most people think that the whole purpose of their life is happiness. Do what makes you happy, right? That's like what we've been sold our entire lives. And so if you think the entire reason that you were created, the whole reason your heart beats inside your chest is for you to have a smile on your face, then of course you're going to think that the objectivity, the purpose of marriage itself is to make you happy, right? And so when you start with that assumption, it's easy to see how we've gotten to place in society now. And this is the reason I think the divorce has become so rampant, right? You people I hear all this, say, well, I'm just not happy anymore. Uh, you know, there was a time where he swept me off my feet, but now not anymore. And so I'm just not happy. So we invented something called the no-fault divorce. And now it's easier to get out of a divorce than a contract with AT&T, right? And that's just, it's the world we live in, and it's sad. And this is because if personal happiness is really the purpose of marriage, then for any reason, you can leave. Secondly, you should be allowed to be married to anyone who makes you happy, right? Again, if the whole reason of you being alive is for you to be happy and the whole purpose of marriage is for you to be happy, then you should be able to leave when you're not happy, and then you should be able to marry anyone and anything that makes you happy. But what if, what if marriage, sex, and sexuality those things themselves aren't social contracts, but rather they are given to human beings by God and he designed them. And they're rather supposed to be used in very specific ways. So it's not for us to culturally decide, but rather for us to discover. Like an archaeological dig. I went to Biola, and at Biola they have this, um, I think you guys can, I don't know, they still have it there, but I don't know if you can still dig it, but um, they had an archaeological site of a, like a woolly mammoth, I believe, and uh, when we go into class, I'd see all these you know, kids out there with like, toothbrushes or whatever it is, right? They're doing this archaeological dig, trying to uncover something that was placed there. I think that's exactly what, it, what marriage is for us. We need to do an archaeological dig to find out what is marriage and to discover what God's purposes were, uh, for it were, right? And so today, we're going to quickly discover what some of those purposes could be. There are five. I'm just going to go through a few, but here are the five. There is partnership, pleasure, procreation, prospering, and personal sanctification. Partnership, pleasure, procreation, prospering, personal sanctification. They obviously all have to start with P because I'm a pastor. Okay, so today, um, we're going to just get a couple of these, but I want to talk about a few. Here we go. Number one, partnership. Anyone know what the first book of the Bible is called? Perfect. Go there with me. Genesis. We'll start maybe in Genesis 1. If you don't know where Genesis is, it's your first page in your Bible. It literally means the beginning. And if you don't have your Bible, don't worry. It'll be up in the Sky Bible. All right. So, uh, okay, it says this. Um, before we hop into Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let me give you a few things. If you look at the very first chapter of Genesis, it says the creation of the world is the subheading in the title. 
you're going to see God creating the universe, and he creates everything, the stars, the moons, right? He creates uh, the planets, the animals, your ex-girlfriend. He creates absolutely everything in the world, right? You're going to notice that in every single act of creation, it says, God said, God said. It's singular. But when it comes to the creation of man, you'll notice that there's a different change in the tense of God. It goes from singular to being plural. Go with me. It says this. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, over all the creation that move along the ground. So he goes from creating out of the singular, and then when he goes to create human beings, i.e. you and me, God's plurality comes out. What do I, what do I mean by this? Well, as Christians, it makes sense, because we believe in a God that is called Trinitarian, and it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we don't have too much time to talk about really what the Trinity is today. I can do a night on that if you care about it. But really, that he is, he is three persons in one being. And that doesn't really make sense because God is a supernatural being. Therefore, nothing in the natural world will mimic something of a supernatural agency. But at least here's what we can learn from that reality. In all other religions and philosophies of the world, I want you to think of it in this way. Relationships come later. There was a God that created and then decided to enter into relationship with that which that with which he created. But with the Christian God or the Judeo-Christian God, we have something uniquely and distinctly different than every other religion, philosophy, or ideology. We have a God that has always existed in relationship from eternity past. It wasn't like Jesus came to exist throughout the birth of Mary. That's when he added humanity to his deity. But Jesus, the person of the Trinity, has always existed in heaven, just like the Holy Spirit and just like God the Father. And so it's only in the Christian worldview that you have a God that's existed in a relationship with one another since eternity past. You're asking, all right, dude, what am I, a theology class? Why are we talking about this? Because if we are made in God's image and God is a relationally contingent being, that would mean that you and I are also relationally contingent beings. Go with me to Genesis 2.18. It says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Up until this point, all of what God created was good except man. He's been bad ever since. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> did God mess up when he created man? I mean, some of you think probably, yeah, and maybe for some of you, but uh, I'm just kidding. But no, it's just he wasn't done yet. It was very good. It was very good. It was very good. It's not good for man to be alone. Go to verse 20 with me. For Adam, chapter 2, by the way, no, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. God's solution to finding Adam a suitable helper, a partner to do life with, was to create Eve. It's vitally important that you see that she is created equal in worth and in value. In fact, Eve was made out of Adam, not out of thin air or the dust of the ground like man was. I heard a poem that says this. It says, women were created from the rib of men to be beside him, not his head to top him, nor from his foot to be trampled by him, but under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. <laughs> but Eve, even this, this, this story is an image bearer of God. And like Adam, it gives her an equal sense of value and worth and status of him. It is only the Christian view and the Jewish view of women that create an equal status between men and women every other religion. I mean, just let's just use the other largest monotheistic religion other than Christianity, Islam. When a man dies, he gets what? 40 what? Virgins. Does that sound like a man-made religion to you? That when a man dies, he gets 40 female virgins? Yeah, it sounds like a man-made religion, right? Where a man can sexually objectify women in it. Where they, there's a polygamous part of it as well, where they can have more than one 
wife or person that they sleep with, right? So in the Judeo-Christian view, women are equal in every single sense of the way as a man. Now, it's also important that although they are the same kind of person, they are different kinds of beings. That she, Eve, is different biologically, anatomically, neurologically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally different than a man. See, God did not create a mere image of Adam, but rather a complementarian image and view of himself. And they were designed that way for a handful of reasons. Um, I could get into a lot of this, but there's a lot of sociological evidence to prove why uh, homosexual relationships don't work. And, and there was this, um, I did this in our, when we talked about gay marriage. Um, one is that when you get two men in a relationship with one another in a homosexual relationship, they are way too sexually active. And their testosterone and desire to be promiscuous is just way too high. When you get two women in a, in, in a, in a relationship with one another, and obviously in a lesbian relationship, um, the, the, the emotional intensity of the relationship becomes too much and it doesn't work either. And so you see this beautiful complementarian nature between a man and a woman where the woman tempers the, uh, the sexual desires in a man um, and brings them to a realistic level and for a, a woman tempers the, the, the emotions of a woman. And God designed them to be in a complementarian relationship. And they're designed in a way for a plethora of reasons. Number one, to procreate. Right? Every other biological function you can do independent. You can breathe, your heart can, you can think, you can blink, you can do everything but procreate. To, for that, you need the opposite sex. So procreation is a pertinent part of marriage. Number two, it was it, it, uh, to help shape one another. I talked about that earlier. And they're designed to reflect different characteristics of God. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but I'll give you some resources. If you ever sit down with me when you guys get um, engaged um, and you want me to marry or a pastor at this church or you just want some advice, I'm going to give you these two resources as well. The first one was How We Love. The second two are this. Um, by John Elderidge, there's a book entitled um, Wild at Heart. And that's the one I recommend for guys. And then for the girls, his wife wrote a book, Stacy, I believe is her name, and it's called Captivating. They talk about these complementary natures, that God has gifted men certain qualities of his heart and then women certain qualities of his heart. Only within a marriage do they reflect God's Trinitarian nature. I wish we had more time to talk about it, but I've already, already been here for like 30 minutes. Okay, um, men and women are very, uh, very different with how we parent. Look, Chelsea and I, we love our daughter Noelle very differently, right? You can catch me like every other day, like running around the house, like chucking her up into the clouds, right? Just getting, she's like the roughest little girl. I love it. So I just throw her up in the air, just, you know, I wrestle with her on the ground or whatever. She's 18 months, put her in headlocks, whatever. And, uh, and then you can see my wife, right? Wife is like the opposite of me, right? She's like on the couch with her, you know, like, I don't know, like putting makeup on her, not makeup on her, like, like lotion on her face. Like, you're so beautiful regardless of what are the girls in the nursery say, whatever, right? <laughs> whatever, the babies can't talk yet, whatever. Uh, <laughs> whatever, right? And it, we're just different, right? Our culture, though, would have you believe that men and women are the same. And I think that's a tragedy. And it's also silly when you look throughout the time span of human history. I mean, think of how egotistical it is of us as a society to go like, now, for 5,000 years of written history, they've always seen man as a man and women as a woman. The gender was not a social construct. There was a biological and even neurological difference between men and women. But now, now, now in the modern world, we have now self-discovered. And you know, there's another interesting thing that um, some commentators write on, um, that if you look into what families are experiencing the highest level of gender dysphoria, did you know it is the Hollywood elite? which actors, let's be real, are normally the most narcissistic human beings. That I realized that, that for 100,000 years the homo sapiens sapien has been around, that now that 
for what has worked for almost 100% of all mankind, men and women, doesn't work for me. It's narcissistic in nature and egocentric. That these two categories don't work for me. I gotta create one and then get attention because of that. I think it's narcissistic. I also think that there's some, some uh, neurological deficiencies that are happening there and there's some scientists talk about that. And if you want to talk about, I think that people experience gender dysphoria, they have a mental illness, as all medical science up until the early 2000s said, said so. But anyways, we're getting off track. All right, so um, yeah, all throughout human history, mankind has understood that gender is not a social construct, nor is it something that we get to decide, but rather it's divinely designed and it's given to us. Um, scripture says that we're made in God's image. Um, both genders reflect an aspect of the Trinity. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Each member of the Trinity, they are equal in nature, but have different roles and functions. It's called the divine imperative, for those of you guys that care. The Father um, is the sender, the Son is the achiever, and the Spirit is the sustainer. Just like men and women have complementary natures that accomplish different things in marriage. Um, uh, yeah, so all this really sets the framework for marriage. I want you to go to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24. Um, and I, here's, here's where I want to spend some time. Um, this is a really interesting verse. Uh, it says this. I think I have a different translation that I want to use. I want to use a different translation, so I'm going to read something uh, different. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I want you to notice the pattern here, right? The man leaves his father and mother with his wife. That is the ideal household. I'm going to say this again. The man leaves his father and mother with his wife. That's the ideal household. Here's what's wild. When... Uh, God, when God was saying this to Adam and Eve, you know what Adam and Eve didn't have? A father or a mother. Like, God, uh, what's a father? What's a mother? God pre-created what he wanted marriage to be before there was ever another marriage to point to. He already created what the paradigm was going to be to inform Adam and Eve of this is what marriage is supposed to look like forever. So I want you to notice the pattern there, Right? And that it's this young man and this woman are leaving to create a new household. So I want to break, oh, let's do a Bible study really quick, all right? So I want you to break apart this verse with me. The very first word is therefore. The word signals that Moses is asking us to pause and now think. Moses is the author of the book of Genesis, by the way. He then turns to us post-fallen people and says, now let me explain how what God did so long ago is normative for us today. The pattern. It says, a man shall leave his father and his mother. In a culture of strong uh, bonds between the generations, this is actually striking. A man's primary human relationship is no longer with his parents. He breaks away from them for the sake of a more, let's say, profound loyalty. By the way, this is so important. I also get to do um, marital counseling with some people that have been married for a while. And one of the things that often happens is they don't, they don't leave. They don't, cle- they don't leave and cleave to the new relationship. They're still kind of really tethered to mom and dad. And it does infringe upon the, 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 the abundance of the relationship they can experience with their spouse today. It continues, it says, and hold fast to his wife. Right? A man in marrying now enfolds his wife into his heart. At every level of his being, he becomes wholeheartedly devoted to her as to no other human being. And that's the beauty, right? When you say, I do, on the day in which you get married, you say, I don't, to every other woman or every other guy on planet Earth. And then it says, they shall become one flesh. One flesh is, the, is essential to the biblical view of marriage. It means one mortal life fully shared. One mortal life fully shared. It also is a Greek word. The Greek word is a cod. A cod means to be fused together at the deepest, or it's actually Hebrew, and I'm sorry, uh, fused together at the deepest uh, level. It's the idea that when a man and woman come together, united in marriage and through sex, that the God now views them as one entity. It's kind of wild to think about. And it's these, these two individual people that become one united us. 
in some sense of the way. Two selfish me's now, be, now thinking like one united uh, we in some sense of the way, or us in some, in, in some way. Now, to really understand the way that God views sex, though, we need to kind of step back for a moment. In the Old Testament, you're going to hear God make these covenants with different people. Now, covenants, if you guys don't know, you didn't grow up in church, there's, there's a handful in the Old Testament. There's the Adamic covenant God created with Adam and Eve. There's the Noahic covenant. He flooded the world. There is the Mosaic covenant with the law. There's the Davidic covenant. There's what other covenants? The Abrahamic covenant. There's a handful of covenants. There's, and there's the new covenant in the New Testament, right? Covenants is just a, think of them as contracts um, that God is making where he enters into a personal relationship with someone where he reveals himself to them and they promise in some sense the way to be faithful to each other. And this is far more intimate than a legal relationship, but it's also far more enduring than an emotional relationship. Now, God knows, because he's God and he's smart, that it takes more than just human emotion to stake often committed to a relationship. It creates a legal and binding infrastructure as the contract. Well, think of it this way. It is so much easier to be vulnerable, transparent with someone who has promised to be exclusively faithful to you till death do you part. And so God creates these covenants to show a legal and intimate commitment. Now, the exclusive relationship of one man and one woman for one lifetime is his idea of a marriage, and it is simply called a covenantal relationship, covenantal relationship. So we have the covenantal relationship, and then in juxtaposition to that, you have the consumer relationship, which is the personal happiness one. In the covenantal relationship, why I think this one is so much better? Because it's a relationship where your needs are now more important than my needs. It's a relationship where sex just becomes a way to express the beautiful commitment that we've made to one another. And to contrast that with this one over here, which is the consumer one, it's a relationship about my happiness, fulfilling my desires and my fulfillment. And sex is just a natural desire that you, the opposite gender, need to fulfill and, and you're obligated to do so in that view, Right? I think, it's, I think this view over here, the covenantal relationship, is superior in so many ways than the consumer one. But let me just give you two. Number one is security. Consumer relationships are always you're trying to perform or, or they're going to leave. I need to, I, need to, I need to go to the gym. I need to be pretty. I need to, I need to do this, do that, whatever it is. And I have to better make them happy. They're going to leave me. And it's just you literally have to sell yourself to this individual every day and every month because you need to be the better option that they have than every other person. And then you have, you have the covenantal relationship where you can kind of just finally be yourself. You can get fat and be happy, right? You can just be yourself. They have promised to be faithful to you till death do you part. And then you have on this side the freedom one as well. Consumer relationships are dependent about how I feel day to day. And if they don't make me feel good, then I can leave the relationship. You become a slave to your feelings. And you enter back into those junior high relationships that never worked. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Then you have the, you have the covenantal relationship where you can be free from the you know, the fluctuating roller coaster of feelings that you have because you have made a commitment to, to be with this person. Both of these view sex drastically different. Let me talk about the biblical view of sex for a second. Sex, a biblical understanding of it is this. It's basically giving you my body as a token of already giving you my life. That's what sex is supposed to be. It is a token of me giving you, because I've already given you my entire life, every part of my life till death that we part. I'm now also giving you my body. It's whole life disclosure with somebody, and sex is a renewal of that full life-giving commitment that you've, that you've made, right? And I've heard a lot of people say, like, well, sex is okay if like, you really love the person, right? Well, no, but that's not found anywhere in Scripture. So if I'm not talking to a believer, then that'd be the argument I've had. But if I'm talking to a believer, Scripture's very clear. Well, sex, I really love the person, therefore we can have sex. And I just say, that's selfish. And it's selfish because you're unwilling to give your full life to them. You just want physical pleasure from them. Right? You were in that, you, in that, you were taking something, you were not giving something. 
You want sexual disclosure without full life commitment, without full life disclosure. And this is taking a covenant good and turning it into a consumer good where you just consume something. Did you know, and I was reading a report, and I know this when I sit down with couples, that, let me see if I can pull it up, that, yeah, statistics show that a vast majority of people in America say they have sex in order to keep their relationship going. And if they weren't having sex, the relationship would come to an end. Isn't that sad? You know, whenever I do couples counseling, the very first thing I ask is, are you sleeping together? It makes it so awesome. Uh, they said, like, hey, we really want you to marry me or marry us, you know? And I go, yeah, it's great. Uh, let's schedule a day and we'll sit in my office and, you know, we'll start our three premarital counseling sessions. And the first question I go right out of the gate is, so really blessed and honored to be a part of that day for you guys. Real first, just quick question to just get it off. Like, are you guys sleeping with each other? And then it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like squirm around, right? And um, if they are, I just say, all right, well, if you want me, a pastor, to marry you guys and you want a blessable relationship, uh, you need to be blessable, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ask that you guys stop sleeping with each other. And so at least the people, if I hope they're not lying to me, <laughs> um, you know, they, they say they'll, they'll stop sleeping with each other. And so we schedule it for a month or two, our next meeting. And it's so interesting because when they stop sleeping with each other, their relationship is entirely different now. In fact, I've actually had couples that have been in my office. I've, I've, I encourage them, which I'm like, you've asked a pastor to marry you. Like, what was the question you think I was going to ask, you know? Um, I've had a couple in my office, and this was years ago, actually not make it to the altar because they realized that sex so skewed their view of each other, they didn't actually like each other. They just liked sleeping with each other. And I was like, yeah. I don't really want to marry this person, right? Sex is a way of clouding judgment in a lot of ways. But let me give you the ethics of sex in Scripture. It's this. You must not do with your body what you were unwilling to do with your whole life. You must not do with your body what you're unwilling to do with your whole life. I'm going to wrap up with this. I realize that there is a large segment of us here today that has misused the gift of sex. And that's problematic for a handful of reasons. The way that I teach it in... Uh, in junior high and high school is I tell students, it's kind of gross, but it's kind of funny at the same time, and it, it sticks in their mind, that sex is sticky. And here's the image that, 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 I, that I, I see. Imagine you have two pieces of duct tape, and you stick these two pieces of duct tape together. And then you try to pull them apart. What happens to the two pieces of duct tape when you try to pull them apart? Two things. They actually get damaged in the process because they're supposed to be a cod fused together, one mortal life fully shared. Now, you can potentially pull them apart, but a few things happen. Number one, they're damaged, and number two, they lose their sticking power. So the next time they go and stick it on something, has a little less bond, and then a little less bond, and then a little less bond, and then you find yourself on Tinder, right? <laughs> or whatever it is, <laughs> right? And then it's just bonding no more. It's just a physical act, right? See, there's actually some neuro neuroscience to talk about this as well. There's a few chemicals called vasopressin. Vasopressin is something that's produced in our brains when we're having intercourse, or when you're watching pornography, by the way. Um, and, yeah, through intercourse. And so uh, vasopressin is called the love bonding chemical. It literally, our brain is something called neuroplastic, meaning that it rewires itself. And when you are, are engaging in sex, certain parts of your brain light up and this vasopressin is produced. It's only produced two times in a woman's body, one in a man, when he's having intercourse, and two um, in a woman's body when they're having sex and when they see their child, when, when they're giving birth. And it bonds them to their child immediately. This is the reason that mothers often have experienced an immediate bond with their child. And men, they need to, in some sense, fall in love with their son or daughter, right? But for a woman, it's immediate. God designed the, the, the brain like, in a beautiful way, right? But you can see, right, that this vasopressin, uh, it, it, 
it loses its power to bond you to somebody. Here's another interesting thing. Um, if you've ever, and this isn't to like, uh, how to say this? I'll say this one. Vasopressin's produced more in a woman's brain than it is a man's. This is the reason that if you've ever been in a relationship where you've been sexually active, you finally slept with your boyfriend and he left you. And it really devastated you in a deep way. And that is because you have become chemically bonded to this person in a way that, yes, he has as well, but it's produced in a less intensity in men's brain than women's, right? And so one of the things about sin or sex just in general, whenever we abuse a misused gift from God, it always leads to some type of death. My encouragement is you don't want to stick your heart to someone who doesn't want to stick their life to yours, right? And so some of you here today are thinking, all right, I'm the person you just talked about. Whether the guy or the girl, I have had sex outside of marriage. I've used it as a consumer good, now what I do. In fact, 97% of the people in this room are probably more in that boat, right? I'm going to give you a few things. Number one, I'm going to give you some guidelines. And number two, I'm going to give you some hope. If you are currently in a relationship where you're actively having sex or you're actively watching porn or whatever it may be, I want to very much encourage you just to stop. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, it says this. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Now, this isn't a little translation, so don't go home and then say, Pastor Matt told me to you know, take a fork to the eye. That's not at all. You're misinterpreting what I'm saying. Right? What it means is do everything you can to not be and live in sexual immorality because it's destroying you from the inside out. So if you need to throw your computer out, if you need to break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, if you need to, whatever it is. And then the next part is you need to accept his forgiveness. Confess your sin to God. In um, uh, 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, like I said, there's majority of the guys in here are addicted to porn and a large percentage of you guys had sex outside of marriage. I'm here as a pastor to tell you that God's word says that you can be made new, holy and 100% new. And that your record before God can be completely wiped out. There's this beautiful word in the Greek language where Jesus is on the cross. He says, Elohi, Elohi, lama sepaktani. That's, that, that, that's Aramaic. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the very last utterance to Jesus' word is he says this Greek accounting term, tetelestai. Tetelestai. And he could have chosen a plethora of words to make his last word, but Jesus chose that word. And it's a beautiful word because it was a word that was stamped all over receipts in the ancient world. And the word tetelestai means paid in full, paid in full, that your debt, your sin before God is completely paid in full, washed away, past, present, and future. And so whatever you have done in your past, if you offer it, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whether it be you have been sexually active or you're addicted to pornography, God offers you freedom, God offers you wholeness, and God offers you forgiveness. And so stop carrying your past around like you carry around your phone enslaving you to the guilt of things that you've done. It has been nailed to the cross. Leave it there. Don't dig it up. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so when you start feeling guilty about something you may have done, know that Jesus has wholly forgiven you. Today, I want to talk about a little more about marriage, a little about sex, sexuality, and the freedom that God offers you in your guys' groups. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for you guys, and I'll give you guys, let's say, 20 or so minutes to break up into groups. Um, yeah, that should be enough time. All right, let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for today and uh, for your goodness, and that you are a God that offers us wholeness and healing um, and redemption. And so, Father, I ask that you continue to show us that your way is better. We love you in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. 
Thanks again for listening.